Welcome to Radical Australia and Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscana. I'm hosting this program. The program is podcast. You'll be able to access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Now, as, as usual this afternoon, we've got another fascinating guest. Obviously, we don't interview boring people on Radical Australia. We have on the line because we still can't get guests into the studio. We've got to have them on the line, although I am in the studio and Kelly is producing is also in the studio. We have Bernadette Bernie Golding. Hello. Bulavanaka and g'day, Dr Joe. Uh, yeah. What did you just say to me? What did you just say to me? Did you just swear at me? No, I didn't. <laughs> it was a formal hello in Fijian as well as the traditional Australian. Uh, so could you repeat it again slowly? Uh, Bula Vanaka. Bula Vanaka. That's it. Ah, so if I go to Fiji, which I've never been to, if I say Bula Vanaka, you won't hit me. No, they will uh, greet you with open arms. Oh, that's lovely. All right, well, that kind of uh, stole my thunder there because we only asked two questions, and <laughs> one of them is where were you born? <laughs> well, I was, I was actually born in, in regional Victoria in Hamilton, uh, uh, in the 60s, and uh, I'm the one of seven children, uh, and my dad's from Fiji and my mum's Australian. Well, how did that relationship happen? In the 60s, that would have been what would be described as a radical relationship. It absolutely was. Uh, so my dad arrived uh, in Australia as a medical radiographer uh, and went to work in uh, St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne where my mother was a working radiographer. So back then, we're talking mid-60s, white Australia policy was still in place, uh, but they met and fell in love and I was really lucky to have uh, my mum's family, the McCabe's, five generations worth of uh, traditional Irish, English, Australians, welcomed Dad with open arms and um, we've been really lucky to have a blessed um, and blended family. Is that why, well, this is where Hamilton comes in, is it? That's case. right. Yeah. So yeah. Dad, Dad and Mum were, were placed there as radiographers uh, the year I was born uh, before Dad went off to Vietnam. So he actually served as part of the Australian um, surgical parties that mm-hmm. were sent off uh, in the late 60s. Uh, and my mother continued to look after kids and lots of them. Seven. Is, uh, when your Dad, are your parents still alive? Yeah, they are. They, uh, they're both living down in Bass Coast in San Remo uh, in Victoria and my dad is still renovating houses. He's 85 mm-hmm. and mum's 75. Mm. 
Did he ever talk about his uh, life in Fiji? Yeah, I, uh, Dad was really uh, keen for us to stay connected with our Fijian family and our Fijian roots. So we talked a lot about uh, Fiji. We had people from Fiji come and live with us while we were growing up and that was a big contributor to me deciding to move back there as a 24-year-old trained nurse. Mm. Well, let's go back a few years. So did you go to primary school in Hamilton? No, after they finished the stint in Hamilton, they moved to Hawthorne, which was then a working class, Mm -hmm. and they stayed there for over 45 years. And I grew up and went to uh, St. Joseph's Primary School in Hawthorne, and then on to Kilmora College, which was a Bridgetine convent in Hawthorne as well. Mm. What, as a boarder or as a day student? No, close enough to walk. Close so enough to walk. Everything was only a block away. Right. So, so did, did did religion play a part in your your upbringing, or was it just convenient to go to a Catholic school? No, uh, both my parents are uh, strong Catholics. We went to church every Sunday. We were not just at church. We were liturgical dancers. We were altar servers. We were also in the church choir. Uh, so nuns and, and priests were very prominent. We were really lucky to have great relationships with both the Bridgetine Convent and the Jesuits that headed up Immaculate Conception in Hawthorne. Mm-hmm. And does religion still play a part in your life? Um, we're still really Catholic. Uh, we don't always get to church on Sunday, but we certainly make sure that our children are connected uh, to faith and making sure that they live a Christian life uh, and serving others is really important. Right. Okay, what's your main memory of primary school? Anything positive or negative? Or Yeah, I think as a... Uh, a mixed race, people would refer to it, or a biracial child. I was really lucky that mum and dad settled in one place because it meant I formed relationships in kinder and and primary school before people really knew what race was. And so in Hawthorne, I had a really safe space uh, at school and uh, with the kids uh, that are now still my friends. I've got a friend named Shauna and a friend named Annette. I've known Shauna since kinder and uh, Annette and I I've stayed friends as well. We have the same birthday and that's pretty much been uh, the last 50 years. No matter where we go, we, uh, we're still connected. So, so do you think being part of the uh, same um, church was really positive in terms of your upbringing as, a, as a, what they describe as a mixed-race child? I think for our family, it absolutely was. Uh, as well as my friends, we had families around us who formed this really tight community. So we all went to the swimming pool together. We had the same library. Uh, we did the same after-school netball and football um, sporting team events and uh, we also went to primary secondary school together so it meant that we were well supported. I had some challenges. Um, I used to be quite good at sport as a youngster and so when I was competing uh, quite often I would be on my own uh, attending an athletics carnival or a netball carnival and uh, sometimes once you step out into other communities, people always wanted to know, where do you come from? Uh, I'm from Hawthorne, I'm Australian. No, you're not. You're not Australian. What are you? No, you're not. And 
So quite often, uh, really, from as early back as I can remember, I was always having to justify my background. So where do you come from? You don't look Fijian, you don't look Australian, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it really set off in me a, a sense of, of not always being accepted and being a bit disconnected. And I think that's also why I hopped on a plane as a 24-year-old and, and went off to Fiji to try and find my tribe over there as well. Mm-hmm. Just look, you know, we've got a long, long chat here, Bernie, so we're going to go back. Let's go sure. back Let's go back to high school. You said it was St. Brigidine's Convent, is that correct? Uh, yes, yeah. uh, so Irish order. Right. Well, were there nuns teaching at that particular point in time or were they all retired? Yeah, we were really lucky to have... I, I had a... a a nun for my music teacher from prep all the way through to grade six, Sister Philip. Now, she looked 150 uh, way back then, but she did last until my, my high school years. Uh, Sister Geraldine, who was one of my favourites, was the principal. And I went on and had uh, other nuns, Sister Rose, Sister Angela, uh, were also prominent in high school as well as Sister Marion. So uh, I I still uh, intermittently stay connected with some of the, uh, the nuns that are still alive. Uh, and they were always great for us, really friendly, lots of fun at school. Mm. So very, very tight-knit. Bridgeton community we were back then. How do they, how do they feel about the uh, scandals that have been engulfing the Catholic Church around the world? I assume they feel betrayed, do they? I think uh, I know. Sister Angela was certainly prominent in, in trying to um, work towards healing with a lot of the people who were victims, is my understanding. Mm. Uh, and I, my experience, uh, both within the Jesuit community in Hawthorne and also the Bridgeton community, was only positive, uh, where I was always made to feel included. Unfortunately, I know that wasn't always the case for um, a lot of people within the Catholic Church, and um, unfortunately, it is contributing to people turning away from the church and perhaps um, looking elsewhere to to fill their fill, their faith or their spiritual needs. Do you have any messages for those people? Yeah, I think uh, most importantly for anybody who's been impacted um, by historical issues within the Catholic Church, I'm I certainly completely understand why people have made decisions in regard to their faith, but um, there are some um, positive stories out there and I think it was not really about um, God or Jesus or or potentially some of our orders. I think the the acts of individuals uh, is is really what has happened and, you know, if if there is positives to come out of it, I think it's about being honest about what's happened, making sure anybody who was impacted is supported moving forward uh, and also making sure we've got good controls in place so it doesn't happen to other children again. Mm. And um, just to change the topic, uh, you said you've got six brothers and sisters, is that right? Yes. um, One of my sisters died a few years ago, but I still have five siblings alive. Mm. I assume that was a exceptionally difficult time when your sister died. It's not the type of thing you expect, is it? No. 
we are a really tight uh, bunch of siblings, although we intermittently are spread through the world. And my younger sister, Penny, contracted aggressive breast cancer as a 38-year-old mother of two little boys. So mm. um, they were only two and four at the time. And uh, she did everything in terms of chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery, and unfortunately, despite uh, all the best efforts of the medical people involved, she ended up with um, very quick brain spread and bone spread uh, where she had horrific radio and chemotherapy. And uh, we were given the, the 24 hours to go signal and, and she actually really fought to stay alive and lived another six uh, Six months, sorry, six weeks before right. she uh, mm. she died uh, in 2013. Mm. Well, my, my condolences because I've had close people die, and, um, and the, the older you get, obviously, the, but you don't expect it from a, you know a sibling. You really don't, you know, especially a young sibling. So, did you excel at anything in high school? Uh, I think so. Uh, <laughs> sport was my go-to, and I wasn't always the best at study, but I was lucky to be smart enough to get through without doing too much work, uh, and I didn't really connect to the, the benefits of good study until I was much older. But I did uh, excel at springboard diving, so one metre springboard. Uh, I was a swimmer, despite never really having lots of lessons, which is probably a salute to my my island background uh so freestyle butterfly uh were my strokes back then uh netball was a game that i loved as well and i also happened to be pretty good at throwing discus and shot put uh, although they weren't the the fun sports events you realize bernie you just made me feel tired listening to that <laughs> <laughs> it's been a few years <laughs> Do you do any sport today? <laughs> Look, I it, I don't want to get into a, um, my bathers anymore, so I, I struggle uh, <laughs> heading off down the pool. I do right. occasionally uh, try to, to get my kids out there, yeah. uh, but really now it's just intermittent um, trying to get into a gym or do light weights at, at home right. and a quick walk if I can talk myself into it. Yeah, I think you've reached my age. I think you're much younger than I am anyway. Uh, so how old were you when you graduated from high school? Uh, I just turned 18. So what did you decide to do? I wanted to be a, like a lifeguard at the pool, which is where we spent all of our childhood. Uh, and then I decided I wanted to do physiotherapy, but you had to stay study hard to get into physio back then so I fell into nursing uh, after that and my grandmother was a nurse so she really encouraged me to uh, to take up the nursing profession as well. Right, there's, there's the um, McNabb side or the Fijian side? Uh, the McCabe. McCabe, so, my apologies. Uh, yeah. Peg, Peg McCabe was the uh, night matron at Bendigo Base Hospital. Whoa, whoa, you wouldn't want to cross her. No, she was pretty scary when we were little. I can imagine. As an intern, I would never want to cross her. I met a lot of night matrons. I learned very quickly <laughs> who the boss was. They just tolerated Correct. the young doctors. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, you got it right there. So where did you do nursing? Uh, so I went to 
So I was amongst the last of the hospital trained nurses through Box Hill Hospital, mm-hmm. which was a great hospital because it was general. Anything specialist, as you would know, got shipped into into the city. Yes. Uh, but we had a, a kids ward. Uh, we did general surgery. We had uh, surgical and medical wards and orthopaedics, of course. So uh, it, it was really good practical uh, general nursing training back then. So what year did you finish your training? I finished in 1990, right. uh, and I did another couple of years there uh, as part of you know my grade program uh, in a surgical ward before I moved to Fiji. Right. Now that that's a big move. For, had you been overseas uh, before we moved to Fiji on a trip or anything? Yeah. My dad decided that it was really important that he take us back to our island. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's from a village called Naroi on Mwala Island in, in the Lao group of Fiji. So it's halfway to Tonga. Uh, and so he packed up these seven children who had never been overseas before and took us to... Now it was remote. There'd just been a hurricane. There was no electricity. Uh, there was no running water into houses. Right. And uh, they hadn't seen very many European uh, people before we arrived. So it was a, a real experience for my mum as well. Let's get let's go back a few steps. This is I'm, I'm always interested in this. When you got off the plane in Fiji, what did you think? So um, Fiji, we got off in in Nandi Airport. So mm. that's the the holiday destination with the you know the flower lays and the the singing. So that was great. But the the trip to Mwala Island, uh, there were no running uh, ships or back then. So we actually had to go and ask the Governor-General to borrow his boat to take us to the island. Uh, and when we got on, it was us and the Fiji military who were going around doing uh, cyclone relief work then. And so we, we arrived seasick. So there were seven kids throwing up over the, over the bow of the boat. And uh, we were supposed to jump off the boat and swim in. That's the traditional way of doing it. Uh, but we were too sick, so we, we literally hauled ourselves in uh, and got off with hundreds of people ready to greet us. It was actually a, a great experience looking back. Hundreds? What, the whole village? Hundreds. The whole village uh, came out to meet us. And Dad's mother's family, so they've got, uh, in, in Fijian terms, they have, you know, the village you're from, but also your vassal, which is your village that your maternal side is from. And that was the next village around, Wanuku village. So we got to go to that village as well. There's lots of traditional ceremonies, so sitting down, listening to stories. There's a, a handing over, a formal ceremonial handing over of things that we bring when we bring our faces. So mats, lots of material, kerosene, um, farming equipment, and the most important thing was uh, tambua, which are whale's teeth. They're very, very precious in in Fijian terms, and Dad made sure that he had lots of tambour for each of his children as part of our acceptance ceremony. Right, so he actually packed away a whole bag of whale's teeth, did he? Which was not easy. Uh, I can imagine. He didn't have a bag of whale's teeth. It did mean we had to go to every relative and every pawn shop between Nandi and uh, Suva, where the boat was leaving from, uh, to get enough whale's teeth to cover everyone. Right. And how old were you when all this was happening? 
I was 11, uh, I think turning 12, uh, when we went off to Mwala, if memory serves. And uh, it was, I was just going from year 7 to year 8. So I might have been 12, 13. Mm. And uh, I had no idea back then how important it was that my parents do that for us. It means that you then have permission to go back to your village for the duration of your life. Uh, and for me to be able to do the same for my family as well. Mm. What was the look like in your mother's eyes? Do you remember that? Uh, <laughs> so my mother is um, as white as white can be. She's green-eyed and red-haired um, with freckles. And so she could not have looked uh, more different, I don't think, to uh, the people in Fiji who you know, have very dark, curly hair and... Uh, I think for them, they were very welcoming, but I think for mum it was quite foreign. And I do uh, quite often take my, my hat off to mum because she she wasn't quite sure what we'd all look like when we were born. I think she had visions of having very brown babies with very red curly hair, um, which isn't quite right. Uh, but it, it just talks to, you know, crossing boundaries. And I think mum and dad being ahead of their time that she was even prepared to go to a village uh, in the middle of nowhere to undergo uh, a week and a half worth of ceremonies that she didn't understand. Yes, no, very, uh, very brave woman. But obviously they've had a great relationship. They're still together, what, 50, 60 years later? Yeah, so they're, they're heading into their, their 50, 55 years uh, yes. together mm. and they are both in good health, which we are very grateful for. So uh, they do have a system uh, and all that they really needed to get used to was how to cook for two people, not ten. Right. <laughs> that seemed to be the as the brood left. Yes, it takes a while, it takes a while. I've been in a similar situation, it takes a while. Now... Getting back to you, um, how long did you practice for in uh, in Melbourne before you went to Fiji? I did uh, after graduating. I did two years in Box Hill Hospital and some agency work before I moved across to Korolevu, which is a, a halfway between Suva and and Nandi. Mm-hmm. So I moved to. Sorry. I just wondered, did you discuss it with anybody before you went or was it just a decision you made or did you discuss it with your family or friends or anything? Yeah, I did. I'd been across to uh, Fiji for a couple of just really quick holidays during my nursing training and I decided then uh, when I met a, a couple of really nice people uh, from Vatukarasa village, uh, which is... Uh, in the middle again from, from Nandi, where I really wanted to stay and learn so I didn't really have plans I just decided that I would go and stay there uh, I had local villagers offer to build me a Fijian bore on the top of a, a hill overlooking the medical centre where I worked and so I stayed there for, for 18 months uh, just learning how to be a public health sister in, in a remote area of Fiji Could you explain what a bray is for me? Uh, a, a boy is a um, Fijian grass hut. So you lived in a grass hut for 18 On months? On top of a hill. On top of a hill, 18 months. Until it blew away in Cyclone Kina. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? Building a grass hut in a cyclone region, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> were you in the hut when it happened or were you in Look, I did, I did. 
I did start in the hut, uh, and I, when the wall started basically vibrating, it did feel like the pressure was going to make the um, the grass hut ex- explode. It was actually quite. Um, it's supposed to be quite safe because if they collapse, they're supposed to collapse through first. Uh, whereas outside, quite often, there's flying corrugated iron, of course. So it was okay until it did feel like it was starting to explode. So I, I escaped to the, the medical centre. And in the morning, um, when I went out, I thought the house was fine because it was still standing. Uh, but it had actually twisted in its foundation. So none of the windows and doors opened anymore. And I couldn't live there. So you said you were learning for 18 months. Would you actually, were you actually do, apart from learning, were you providing services, nursing services? Yes. So what type of so, services were you providing? Uh, so the Quarterly Health Centre, uh, which is still there, basically provided uh, medical treatment to um, lots of villages and, and Indian settlements in the area and as well as hotels uh, and that meant providing uh, the equivalent of, of casualty or accident and emergency care. Uh, we had a, a midwifery or a postnatal uh, clinic, we had blood pressure clinics, diabetic clinics uh, and also any kind of illness that came in and unfortunately there wasn't a lot of equipment back then there was this steriliser which was a boiling unit, um, we had a, a spignomanometer, so a BP machine uh, and some simple items but we were still reboiling needles and syringes back then mm-hmm. uh, we had limited supply to medication um, quite often it was hard to get sterile dressings so we were making dressings with roller bandage so cutting up um, pieces of, of cotton and lint material to to make dressings and hopefully be able to sterilise them. Otherwise, we were using them as is. We used ginger violet for just about everything. Uh, so everyone was always painted purple if they had boils or um, any right. kind of scratches <laughs> or abrasions. Yes. So what was the midwifery like? It would have been um, exceptionally difficult. You would have had your, a huge range of complications, wouldn't you? Um, I think it was learning for me, general nursing, uh, we didn't cover an awful lot of midwifery. I think you had to sit in on, on 20 deliveries and that was you kind of done. Whereas in, in Fiji, every nurse can deliver babies and, and the women, oh, quite often really strong. They mm-hmm. they seem to be able to push the babies out and just get on with it. Right. And there, um, there wasn't a lot of equipment uh, that we had in the health centre where we could, we would arrange for transport to Singatoka Hospital if there were complications. Mm. So you wouldn't be doing forceps deliveries as a nurse, would you? Or? I tried desperately not to be doing anything like that, Dr right. Joe. Um, yes. but I did have a couple of highly experienced nurses uh, who were with me and they'd done all of that. They could right. do it in their sleep with a hurricane lamp and no electricity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that and I've seen it around the world. You know, you, you kind of brought back a memory to me when you were speaking about the hut in the cyclone because I remember when I was doing that, <clears throat> my doctorate many decades ago on spinal cord injuries, um, the most common cause of spinal cord injuries in West Africa is collapsing mud walls from huts during floods. So <laughs> Ah. So I'm just thinking there's always there's always a problem with housing and uh, medical issues. Yeah, 
Maybe it's better if it blows away. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's better that it blows away. That's what I was thinking. I think how, it collapses how, on people. Yeah, I was thinking how, how spectacularly great architecture, which is designed to fit the environment. You, you use materials which, if they collapse, are going to cause minimal damage to people. Well, that's what I was thinking, you know. Amazing. So how long did you last? Uh, so... In in the hut during the hurricane? No, 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 in Fiji. <laughs> oh, I actually stayed there for, uh, after I'd done my, my experience, my 18 months in Kotalevu, I moved to Suva and, and was appointed the National Safety and Life Saving uh, Program Manager with the Red Cross. Uh-huh. So I stayed there and worked with volunteers uh, throughout the country and uh, we got to introduce lots of really good programs, life-saving border safety which is really important uh, for the Pacific, one, because Fiji's got 300 islands, but two, uh, quite often there's no life-saving or water safety equipment. There weren't a lot of life jackets back then, and Fijians in particular, they've got really heavy, dense muscles, so quite often they don't float very well in the water. There's a reason you don't see lots of islanders uh, who are competitive swimmers. Right. Um, their ability to float's not there. So the drowning rate back then was the highest uh, in the Commonwealth uh, in Fiji. And so there were programs that we put in place then to try and encourage water safety as well as swimming. It's quite interesting, isn't it? You, you kind of dream when you left uh, high school of becoming the pool guard. You've become the, you became the pool guard for the whole of a country, whole of a sovereign nation state. <laughs> I did not even make that connection, but uh, you're right. And because they were so keen for anybody with water safety or life-saving skills to uh, to come in and assist and, and help, that I was really welcomed into not just setting up the Red Cross uh, life-saving program, but I joined with a, a, a lovely fella, Albert Miller, who was at the University of the South Pacific then, and we set up a, a water safety program for the other 13 nations uh, that are part of that university. So the intention was to try and get that knowledge and skill through the rest of the Pacific. And look, I was really lucky. I had an opportunity to go off and meet uh, Queen Elizabeth because she's the, the uh, patron of mm-hmm. uh, the Commonwealth Life Saving Society, so she invited me to uh, to Buckingham Palace. So I did get to meet her in '95. Oh, excellent! No, I, I just think I think it's just extraordinary. I had this dream of being the pool guard, and here you are, the pool guard for a whole country, millions of people, nineteen countries. It's amazing. Was there much resistance to people learning um, safety? Fiji, and this was certainly the the 90s, uh, we had then almost an evenly split uh, Indigenous Fijian community and a an Indian Fijian community. And so there were still a lot of people very conservative about what they wore. So women quite often would be in, you know, metres and metres of sari or, or sulu material. So mm-hmm. that could be challenging in terms of teaching swimming, but also water safety. And I think there was a, a a complacency because you're surrounded by water, you know, watching kids near water, um, having equipment for travelling by boat, it, it wasn't always a priority, which was part of the reason the drowning rates were so high. Yeah, I remember my father, <clears throat> who died many years ago, he was in the Navy, and he said to me, we didn't bother to learn to swim, there was no point. If the ship sung, you, you died. <laughs> 
It was a badge. Of, it was his badge of honour, and he never learned to swim. Although I was in the navy for five years. So, when did you come back to Australia? I got married in uh, in Fiji. My my husband is a lovely fella that I, I met in the gym, and also a Fijian athlete. So I, 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 I knew I knew this type of funny business goes on in gyms. I've heard about <laughs> this because my son runs the gyms, and he tells me the number of relationships that develop in gyms is extraordinary. And you and you are the living proof of it. <laughs> I absolutely am, and and thought. Italy, so he he pursued me with a vengeance, Doctor Joe. He won't yeah. tell you that, but that's the that's the truth. And we got married in in Fiji and, and stayed there for a couple of years before we decided uh, when I was eight months pregnant that we wanted to head back and have kids here, uh-huh. um, surrounded by family. Right. And do you think that was the right decision? Well, I, I was going to say yes, of course it was. But when she <laughs> turned five. Um, Michaela, we then decided it would be really good to go off and, and raise our children in the Pacific to get them back to their roots and learn all of those community values. So we moved her back again and then had another two children um, before we finally returned to Australia in 2008. So during this period where you're having children and looking after children, were you still involved in paid work or, or volunteer work or...? Yeah, so when I was in Fiji, I actually set up a, a cultural centre, and part of it was because I wanted to learn more about Fijian culture, but the cultural centre called Positivity um, sold traditional mats, pottery, uh, wooden um, carvings, and tapa mats, uh, so tapa mats as well as woven mats, and it, they were provided to local people as part of their traditional ceremonies, so births, deaths, weddings uh, in particular. But also we ran pottery classes and mat weaving classes uh, for people to try and and promote and continue those traditional skills. Uh, But it was also me, just because I really love uh, all of that culture and, and tradition, it was really me being a bit indulgent and wanting to learn more myself and then share that with other people. Right. Now, during this period you were in Fiji, isn't this the period where there was a lot of internal friction? In terms of government, Mm. uh, 2006, uh, there was a real tension, I think, between some of the different Fijian communities, but also some of the the different, they call them races, but within uh, Indian and other communities as well, and, and politically... Uh, the current Prime Minister, uh, Baini Marama, who was then head of military, uh, did have a takeover. And I am grateful that in Fiji, the military takeovers have been relatively peaceful. Uh, so it means we don't see uh, the bloodshed and a lot of the concerns uh, that there are in other countries. But there's huge impact uh, for people. So... We decided a couple of years in, I think as countries put embargoes uh, on on countries that might be going through civil disturbance, uh, we decided that we needed to move back to Australia, really for employment reasons, uh, because I was still an Australian citizen. It was hard for me to get employment with worker permits. So mm-hmm. we decided to move everybody back from a part of it was was just being safe in terms of instability of economics more than anything uh, but also we'd had a couple of near misses medically and um, the medical 
uh, treatment and options available to you in, in Fiji are still not great. And we nearly lost our then um, two-year-old son and we decided, look, we, we need to go back and just make sure that we've always got that. And we're lucky that we had that as an option. Mm. So did you come back to Melbourne or, or somewhere else? Yeah, no, I came back to Melbourne and I've continued to work. So I've worked in um, occupational health and safety for 15 or so years. I did uh, start that career in the Fiji Sugar uh, Corporation and I continued at Carlton and United Breweries. So um, from sugar to beer and I'm now the group uh, health and safety manager at Scope in Disability. All right. Can I just go back to um, Carlton United Brewery? I've got a question. I've got a friend who I think has been telling me a furphy. And as you were were the health and safety officer, you would know this. He claims that he worked for Carlton United Brewery down at uh, Abbotsford for years, that he had to take his clothes off when he went in to check the machines when the wheat was in or the barley or the hops or something so he wouldn't contaminate the... Now, I always thought this was a furphy. Can you tell me one way or another? So uh, in my time there, so from 2000 and I finished up finally 2015, I do not recall anyone having to take their clothes off in particular areas. There are sterile areas in laboratories where there might be uniform requirements, but I do not remember seeing anyone without their clothes on. No, no, I thought thought this is his his ticket to every meal he goes to, you know. (laughs) I mean, we all didn't believe him, but you never know. But now now I've got it from the horse's mouth, I know. So how hard was it to be a health and safety officer? Did people think you was the enemy or...? In, look, really good question. I think having the nursing background uh, really helps to connect to the health component and CUB was great at looking after their people. They had doctors, psychologists, nurses, um, audiometrists and all sorts of people uh, back then when I first started. So making sure that their, their staff were okay was always really important and I think the nursing background makes having the the safety discussion easier as well because you're always want we're, everyone's wanting to make sure that people go home safe to their families. So I've um, I have been accused in a number of uh, places that I've worked of being the fun police uh, and having my risk lens on all the time. But generally, it's a it's a great job. Yeah, look, it's difficult. Sometimes it's difficult to get people to um, take safety. Uh seriously especially in a in a safe workplace where you, you do follow all the rules and there's very few accidents people get tend to get a bit lax i found in the type of work i've done yeah Agreed. yeah so how old are your kids now i've got a 22 year old mm. a 14 year old and a just turned 12 year old are they all physical like you were you know swimming or? not at all not at all <laughs> So they've got, they've got those. We had hopes. So you've got, you've got a, a partner, a husband who was, it was an elite athlete. You were basically an elite athlete, and you've got three kids now that are intellectuals. Is that, that's what's happened? Is it? A little bit. So uh, I have, and we also have. Um, I've got a, a stepson who's who's thirty, and he certainly um, was. Uh, quite competitive as a youngster, he could run 
the 100 and 200 Australian in Victoria back then. He was he was pretty quick, yeah. uh, and he has recently retired from rugby. But my um, my 22 year old is an artist mm-hmm. uh, and and quite talented from from almost kinder age. Uh, so she's helped me in some of my projects, and uh, my 14 year old Keanu is fantastic at uh, karate. Is his mm-hmm. thing. Uh, and also um, happy to be at school, but that's mainly to talk to friends. Malachi, my youngest one, uh, is in love with all sorts of different types of, of games, uh, but sport is not his thing either. Right. Oh, that's what happens. When you mix the genes, you never know what happens. <laughs> <laughs> you never know that mixture, what you're going to get. And uh, that proves it. You know, I think I know so many families where they look at their kids and they think, where did they go? Where they come from? Yep, that's the great thing about genetics, isn't it? You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you said projects. Tell us about your projects. I mean, you're such a busy woman. How come you've got time for projects? How come I've got time? COVID, uh, a little bit. Uh-huh. When... Uh, Last year, I went off to Timor Leste uh, really to learn more about uh, humanitarian and human rights work. And hang on, hang on, I, hang, on, hang, on hang on, hang on. That didn't come out of the blue. Where is that? Where did that come from? You just don't say one morning, say, I'm going to go to Timor Leste and do this. So, <laughs> quick question. <laughs> uh, I applied for and was accepted into the diplomacy training program, uh, which runs annually in Timor Leste, uh, in Dili, and also in Balabo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I set off as well as uh, 29 other uh, representatives from around the Pacific and uh, some Asian countries as well. And we all descended on a convent in, in Dili for um, training that's provided by lots of United Nations experts. I was actually blown away by um, the calibre of people that came in uh, and really helped us understand um, the mechanisms of the United Nations, how it's set up, how it works, um, where you can get supports, um, but also really important lessons about building solidarity with places that need help and support um, and how solidarity can actually help drive change where it seems like there's no hope. You know, places like Timor, if you think back, um, certainly, you know, in 99, 2000, um, during, you know, tremendous um, horror in terms of um, people being killed and and injured um, there at the time, the, the... you know, how does a country with less than a million people achieve independence and, uh, you know, continue to move on and be really um, respectful and forgiving uh, of what's happened to them in their past and be able to move forward? Um, I think, I'd, you know, I'm, I learned a lot about humility in, in Timor in my limited time there and I would encourage anyone to uh, who's interested in, in things like, you know, United Nations humanitarian and, and um, human rights work to connecting to programs like that one where the learning's fantastic. Let's go back. Um, humility. You learned about humility. Could you could you expound on that? So 
the groups that were there, we had people with disability doing the course, but we also had current um, Timorese politicians and Timorese um, community leaders who shared with us their story of um, what had happened to them before independence, um, what it was like to live through um, when the security forces were there, um, were brought in, and also how do they move forward when you've still got, um, you know, the large percentage of the population is um, living in subsistence farming or, or poverty conditions. Uh, it was different. It felt like Fiji, but it was different because there wasn't as much sort of green lush grass. You know, I know that there are mines and there are lots of riches, but I don't know whether that trickles down to the bulk of the Timorese people. And so uh, I, I think when they share their stories and, you know, we had some people who told us about watching, you know, their partners and their children being um, being killed and how they come out the other end of that and still not have anger and hatred uh, in in their, you know, every waking moment to me is, is quite astounding. I visited Chega Prison um, when we were there and we got to see um, what happened to people under those, those prison conditions, you know, rooms that people would be locked in in the dark for weeks at a time um, and, you know, some of the horrible things that were done in there and yet still they they bring a message of, of peace and learning and solidarity. So, you know, hats off to, to the Timorese people. Mm. And how long were you in Timor-Leste? I was only there for two and a half weeks, but I've maintained all of those friendships and I now work in with one of the disability groups and a lovely young fella, um, Cipri, uh, who is working with uh, children off the streets programs there too. Because mm, Scope would actually be one of the largest uh, disability providers in, in Victoria, wouldn't they? They are. Uh, they're currently very focused on um, working in Australia, but my work um, with the diplomacy training program and in Timor, that's what I do after hours, Dr Joe. So after hours, it's yeah. not connected to scope. Right. That's your, that's your paid employment. This is, this is something else. Now, you said other interests. That's one. What other interests do you have? So... Out of that program, uh, and with quite a few people who were there, uh, we decided to write a book uh, called uh, Children of the Twelve Tribes. And the purpose of the book was really to link all of the Pacific people uh, that we could get to participate. So there were 12 communities uh, initially, and um, we've, we've woven in articles of, of the UN um, Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and also the Conventions on the Rights of the Child. We've um, managed to obtain letters and stories, songs and artwork from um, kids, uh, young people and elders within some of those communities. And we finally have just gotten the the books back, so we are now ready to... Um, to distribute them through uh, those 12 different countries. So what, what countries? What countries are we talking about? So I actually went in order uh, and started in Australia, so it was chronological, the mm-hmm. oldest living culture, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, to Papua New Guinea and West Papua uh, was part of that as well, uh, and across to Timor-Leste, uh, Fiji, Vanuatu, Samoa, Tonga, uh, Tokelau, uh, Nui, 
the Cook Islands and finished with New Pacifica communities in New Zealand and Australia. Right. So you said the book will be available soon, is that correct? Yes, so the book is only just available now um, at our website. If people are interested, www.diversitynetwork.com.au, all one word. Um, but we're also distributing amongst the, the participating communities, including um, the West Papua community that's here in Melbourne and also in Timor, Fiji, Vanuatu. Mm. So was this your first contact with West Papuans or did you have contact before then? I have always had an interest in West Papua, the same as um, Timor, and I think that comes from some of the um, the stories and the lived experiences that I can recall um, from people who talk about World War Two in terms of allies. My my grandfather was a navigator um, with the the RAAF uh, during the Second World War, and he had to stay on for a year to fly back um, personnel who were in the Pacific, including um, my understanding is from places like PNG and and West Papua as well. And my dad always talked talked about these Melanesian communities that were hoping for independence and, and never got there. So that was where a lot of my interest initially started. Um, as part of the Timorese program last year, um, I met quite a few West Papuan students who were learning, um, you know, how can they build solidarity and use education to try and support their people as well. And Unfortunately, that was August, September last year, and so the civil unrest and, and certainly um, a lot of the the violence that erupted over August, September happened when we were in Timor, and these poor kids who were so desperately worried about what was going on at home with their families, and they couldn't get through, so they were up all night just worried about what was happening um, at home in, in West Papua. And I remember thinking, you know, what can I do to help you know, I'm a I'm a 50 year old woman with three kids in Australia. You know, is there? What can I do? You know, to really shine a light for Australians on on the West Papua challenge. And I understand for a lot of people, they're not really connected. Um, they may not have the same thinking in terms of you know Melanesian um, genetics or um, the Australian history allied um, forces during World War Two connections that I have. But um, PNG and West Papua, they're our nearest neighbours and they supported us in, in our time during the Second World War. So I'm, I'm really keen to make sure, if I can, that I, I find opportunities to do that. And the book was a really small way, um, but I wanted to give some of those kids a voice in, in sharing their story, but also connecting with the other communities um, in the Pacific it's interesting, isn't it, uh, Bernie, when you look at it? I mean, as you said, you're a 50-year-old woman. You've got three children. You'd think you'd have better things to do than have, look after uh, other people. And Do you think your religious upbringing is what gave you this empathy or do you think it was just the way you were brought up in your family and the values that were taught to you by, by your um, parents? I think it's a combination of all of those, Dr Joe. I think because I have the the Melanesian connection, it's easier perhaps for me to to be empathetic um, to the people in West Papua because they look like family members of mine, and so it's it's 
say uh, it's confronting for me to know that they're seeking self-determination and they want to be free and they want to live, you know, their lives with dignity. I think if, if you don't have that connection, it's a little bit easier to ignore what's going on. Mm. So how do you think we can bring this story to Australians' attention? I mean, West Park was only 73 kilometres from the Australian coastline and a number of the refugees that are here came here on a traditional boat, you know. Was it in 2004 or 2006? I can't, I can't remember. But um, it's just so close and there is such little interest in what's happening in West Papua. I think for a lot of people it's, one, too confronting and two, it, it doesn't feel like it's as close as it is. Uh, and perhaps... If I if I didn't understand the historical connections, which you'd argue goes back tens of thousands of years, because we're technically all one one land, um, if it weren't for the water that rose ten thousand plus years ago. Uh, but I think it's really important to be able to share the connections. So so how are we connected to West Papua? Uh, and for a lot of people, it is that Second World War story. Uh, but a lot of people, it's the Melanesian connection. I think in anybody who sees uh, what's going on uh, would want to help if they had all of the facts and uh, really easy ways to to connect. So for me, I asked the question, "What what can I do? And it was really as simple as, can you please just plant a tree and take a photo and just tell us that you support um, people in West Papua um, being able to self-determine their future as they've requested. They've signed, you know, they've all bravely signed um, a petition asking the United Nations um, for the right to self-determination and I think the more people that, that in solidarity support um, their request for self-determination, then the easier it is. Um, just plant a tree. And um, I ask routinely, what else can I do? And sharing stories was the second one, so that's what I'm doing. Right. Will you be coming along on the 6th of December? or? I'm thrilled that I've been asked to come along and I'll have some books there uh, because they. Um, I was asked... Uh, to come along and, and show people the books. And uh, I'd had a number of, of contributions from children within the West Papuan community in Melbourne. They also helped with the language translations uh, into uh, one of the West Papuan dialects as well. So I'm, I'm definitely going to be there. Uh, I planted my trees and I made all the other members of my family do the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will continue to uh, support the Melbourne um, West Papuan community. Right. Now, could you put my name on one of those books and I will be paying the full price. You can relax. Uh, right? So I'll be your first sale. Put put my name down because I am very interested. Cause, uh, oh, thank you so much. Well, my late wife was from the Torres Strait, so I've got a... a Great feeling for that. So, put my name on a book, and uh, and um, if people are really nice on the day, I may even buy two books and give one away. So we'll see. Oh, fantastic! So it's at one pm, and it's at eight three eight Docklands, eight three eight Collins Street in. Do- have you been? I assume you've been there to the office, have you? Yes, I have. Yeah, 
I've been in and met some wonderful people when mm. I was asking for contributions to the book, so right. I would certainly be there at that time. Yeah, I think it's made a huge difference since the office was established uh, six months ago, courtesy of the uh, West Papuan Rent Collective. But, um, yeah, it's getting difficult. COVID-19 has pushed, I think, West Papua into the background. But what happened yesterday with the announcement that they formed a transitional government and uh, the repression, which happened yesterday, I think um, may bring West Papua back to the fore on people and a lot, a lot of people's agenda. I noticed uh, Ronnie actually was over from Canberra, who's uh, one of the leading West Papuan activists here in this country, was actually able to get an interview on the ABC uh, last night. So um, maybe, maybe, just maybe, it's beginning to uh, seep into the Australian consciousness. What are your plans for the future? So as part of the, the book publishing uh, that I'm doing at the moment, I've set up a Diversity Network Australia. So DNA is just um, with me. I've, I've formed a, a collective of women at the moment, but we're certainly welcoming of men um, to really share stories and learnings uh, in Indigenous communities in Oceania. Uh, to really build connections, but also to help preserve languages that are being lost, um, stories the same, and hopefully helping kids who are feeling disconnected uh, and not really sure of where their place is, um, a, a safe space to um, have have conversations and discussions, but also to to share stories and and to feel valued. So I'm. Really, really happy that uh, I've had the opportunity to to share my story, and I'm looking for ways to do the same for others in our community. I'd just like to make an announcement about uh, West Papua Day, and then I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think about while I'm doing the announcement. Is uh, what's your advice to any listener who wants to get involved, not just with West Papua, but with the uh, business of getting on with life? What has made your life so productive in comparison to so many people. Just think about it. And Look, the West Papuan Open Day is on this Sunday, the 6th of December, 1 o'clock, lunch, uh, collective members, rent collective members, three, $10 donation for everybody else. 2 o'clock, there will be a uh, Zoom meeting and a face-to-face event with three of West Papua's uh, leading activists, including Edison Waromi, who's the who's a declared Prime Minister yesterday in the transitional government in Jayapur, and I assume he'll be arrested in the next few days. So if you want to register, if you want to do it online, you register at www.trybooking.com forward slash B-M-U-O-B. That's capital B, capital M, capital U, capital O, capital B. And if you want to come along on open day and plant a tree, be part of the memorial, uh, meet West Papuan activists, become a member of the Rent Collective, well, please do so. Just turn up 838 Collins Street, come to the front door and then walk around the side. You'll see all the activity. You'll be more than welcome. So, Bernie, advice to the rest of us. I think uh, for me, uh, the key things that people need to uh, live a a healthy and and well and happy life is really um, having security and uh, 
you know, that's what we're hoping for people in West Papua um, belonging. So having a tribe or community, uh, a team, an organisation around you that you can connect to, um, having really strong identity of, of who you are, and a lot of that comes through purpose. Um, and those things combined uh, are really the keys to people being um, well. So I think it, I, hats off to you, Dr Joe, because you're committed to your, your purpose and your support for West Papua. When a lot of people aren't um, connected and don't see the importance, uh, you know, my message to, to people in West Papua is that there are people here who support you and stand in solidarity with you. And however we can ease, I guess, the challenges that you've had over the last 50 years, um, then there are some of us who are prepared to do that. So I guess that's my message and, and has become increasingly purpose. So I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak with everyone today. Thank you very much, Bernadette Bernie Golding. It will be a pleasure to meet you on Sunday and hopefully many of our listeners would uh, be lining up to buy that book and if they don't buy the book it's their loss thank you very much bernie and look after yourself your husband your family your community and i don't have to tell you that because you do it every minute every day you're a as we say an ornament to this country and i'm very pleased your mother and father met all the best (laughs) thanks so much bye-bye bye